You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Patricia Magoli and Mary Cummins. Patricia Magoli was born in Dublin in September of 1948. She had two sisters and a brother, and grew up just off Capel Street in Dublin's Market District. Patricia attended George's Hill Convent School in Dublin's north inner city until 1963. After that, she worked a number of jobs, mainly in factories, which were a by far more common occurrence in Dublin at that time. Patricia had met and married John Magali while working in one of those factories in 1976, but the marriage was not a happy one and it dissolved after only two years. Her first husband had been abusive, both of them drank too much and argued often. Patricia eventually moved back in with her mother, Julia, with whom she was very close. In 1982, Patricia met another man, one who would feature in her life for much longer than her husband had. His name was Michael Bambrick. He'd also been married before. Quickly, the two began living together in Michael's flat in St. Teresa's Gardens. In 1984, they had their first child, Adrienne. With the birth of their daughter, Dublin Corporation allocated them a larger house, and so they moved to St. Ronan's Park in Ronanstown in 1986. In 1990, Patricia had another child with Michael, another little girl whom they called Louise. Friends recalled that with the arrival of the two little girls, Patricia had cut back on her drinking and it focused more on parenting the children. The same could not be said for her partner, Michael. Michael Bambrick was born in England to Irish parents in 1952. He was one of six children in his family. He had three half-sisters who he never met, and two older brothers. He moved to Ireland with his family five years after his birth. Michael was different from his brothers, both of whom worked hard and found their way in life. Michael was unruly and subject to foul tempers. Author Stephen Ray was told that Michael once got so angry he attacked his own mother, leaving her with bad bruising for some time. Given his temperament, it's perhaps unsurprising that Michael never really had steady employment. He enlisted with the Irish Army in 1974 and was assigned to Cahill Brewer Barracks, but went AWOL only two months into his stint there. Michael had gone back to his parents' home and actually stayed there and was absent without leave for a full two years before surrendering to the military police. After that, he was sent back to the barracks but he climbed over a wall that very night, deserting once again. That's not to say he had anything better in mind, though. Michael was known to stay in bed all day or sit in front of the TV. Sometimes he went to the cinema. That was about it. In 1972, he married a girl called Marie Hayes, and they had a son, but the marriage soon broke up. 
Marie had tried to convince Michael to get a job after the birth of their little boy, but she failed. On top of that, there were more intimate problems in the relationship. Marie had walked in on her husband dressed in women's clothes. In 1974, in Catholic Ireland, that was beyond taboo. Marie asked Michael to stop and to go to therapy. He did see a psychiatrist a few times, but like almost everything else, Michael didn't stick to it. Stephen Ray recounts a far more unsettling incident, however. One night, Michael woke Marie up. He was once again dressed in women's clothing. This time, though, Michael wrapped a pair of tights around Marie's head, gagging her and pinning her down. He was rough with her, and the gag was so tight that Marie blacked out. When she woke up, Michael raped her. It was shortly after that that Marie fled and the marriage broke apart. At this point, Michael moved back to his parents' home, where he was quite happy for a number of years. He eventually moved out after his parents' deaths and the sale of their house and moved to St. Teresa's Gardens, and just after that, he met Patricia. On Wednesday the 11th of September 1991, Patricia and Michael went out for a drink. They left the two girls with Patricia's mother off Cable Street. The couple collected the children from there before they headed home for the night. The next day, Patricia's mother, Julia, was expecting her back again. She always collected Patricia's lone parents' allowance for her. But on Thursday, the 12th of September, 1991, Patricia didn't turn up. Instead, Michael turned up and collected both the social welfare payment and the two girls who had headed to their grandmother's after school. The following day, Michael said that Patricia had left the house that evening at about half eight to make the journey into town to her mother's house. They'd had another fight and she'd left. But Patricia never turned up at Julia's. And so, on Sunday, the 15th of September, Michael Bambrick presented himself at the Bridewell Garda station, the one nearest to Patricia's mother's house, and reported that his long-term partner was missing. He told Gardy that on the 12th of September, Patricia had left the house wearing a mustard-yellow cardigan, black skirt and white sandals. She'd said she was going out, and he'd not seen her since. The delay in reporting her missing, according to Bambrick, was because he wasn't initially concerned when Patricia didn't arrive back. He thought maybe she'd just stayed with friends. But he said by Sunday it was clear that something was amiss. Gardy took the report and started a missing persons investigation. Their first port of call was out to Ronanstown, where the couple lived. Neighbours at St. Ronan's Park said that Patricia kept herself to herself and that no one really knew her, though they all knew that the couple had explosive arguments and recalled shouting coming from the house a lot. In fact, screaming was heard the night before Patricia went missing. One Garda is quoted in the Irish Times as saying, Neighbours heard a ferocious row in the early hours of the morning. There was a lot of screaming and shouting, then it all went quiet, end quote. But as suspicious as that initially seemed, when Gardy asked neighbours when was the last time that Patricia had been seen, they got a surprising answer. Mary O'Neill from next door said she'd seen Patricia the night of the 12th, 
walking down the road just before nine at night. She was wearing a yellow cardigan and black skirt, just like Michael had told Gardee. Mrs. O'Neill remembered the sighting because she'd heard the fighting the night before. She'd commented to her daughter, look, there goes Patricia, not a bother on her. Patricia looked for all the world as if nothing had happened, and there hadn't been World War III in number 57 till the early hours of the night before. As soon as Patricia was reported missing, their youngest daughter, Louise, was taken into care and placed with her aunt. Eventually, so too would the couple's eldest daughter, Adrienne. Soon, the investigation into Patricia's disappearance ground to a halt. Gardie had been told that there was no way Patricia would have abandoned her children, but there was nothing at all to go on. Bambrick began to tell friends that his best guess was that Patricia had run off to England. Across town, in the liberties of Dublin City, and nearly a year later, another woman disappeared without a trace. Mary Cummins, a single mother whose little girl was just five years old in 1992, was reported missing by a friend and neighbour on the 24th of July that year. The day before, on the 23rd, she had collected her single parent's allowance and gone shopping in Mead Street, a market street in the Liberties area. Mary Cummins was born in December of 1956 and spent her first four years of life in an orphanage on the Navan Road. Her mother was a Welsh teenager who had no support for the pregnancy and so left her little girl in the children's home. Mary had no record of who her father was. She was eventually placed with Bob and Bridget Cummins and grew up on the South Circular Road in Dublin city centre. There, she had a sister, another girl the couple had adopted named Josephine. Josephine was more of a twin, though. The girls were only four months apart in age and were always dressed alike and went everywhere together. Another thing that brought them close was the fact that Bob often drank heavily and beat Bridget. When the so-called Cummins twins were 15, Bridget passed away from cancer. Five years later, Bob had a massive heart attack and also died. Mary was basically on her own again. She'd no desire to seek out her birth mother and so tried her best to find some sort of stability for herself. Soon after, Mary met the man that she would be with for six years when she was 21. They lived together in a house in Finglas. The two never married because the man wasn't free to. He'd been married before and was separated from his wife. In that time, she had three kids. According to the Irish Times, with this man, Mary endured an abusive relationship. That man later died of cancer in 1984, leaving part of the proceeds of the sale of his house to Mary. But within months of receiving her inheritance, Mary had spent it. She and the three children became transient with no permanent home. Eventually, all three children were taken from her, and they ended up in care. After a number of years, though, Mary seemed to settle down. She moved into Nicholas Street, between Dublin's two cathedrals. She met another man named Luke. He was a neighbour of hers, in the Liberties. They were happy together, and had a little girl, Samantha. The day Mary went missing was a Thursday, the day she collected her single mother's allowance. 
It was her habit to spend the day in pubs and often liked to continue on into the night. Mary started off the day in Cars, a pub on Francis Street. Mary had her daughter Samantha with her and had met some of her own friends there. Luckily, Samantha had found a playmate in another little girl who was in the pub with her dad. When the girls began playing, their parents began talking. Soon Mary's friends said that they'd take Samantha home and mind her for Mary, something that again was quite usual for Thursdays. Mary decided that she'd continue the night with the man she'd struck up conversation with. That was the last anyone who knew her saw Mary Cummins. Mary never came to pick up Samantha, and Luke noticed that when he called by her house on the 25th of July, that the shopping she had done on Mead Street the day before was still sitting out. It hadn't been put away or even touched. Mary never came back. The following day, the 26th of July, she was reported missing to the Gardaí at nearby Kevin Street Garda Station. The man she'd been in the pub with was tracked down, and he told Gardaí that he and Mary had parted company when they left Carr's pub. Mary had said she was heading home at that point, but she'd never made it there. Mary Cummins' name was added to the list of missing women from the Leinster area. In the following months and years, that list would grow. Annie McCarrick, then Imelda Keenan, and Jojo Dollard all disappeared without a trace. People began to wonder if perhaps all these cases were connected. Soon, Gardie would realise that it was likely that at least some of them were. According to Jim Cusack, writing in the Irish Times in 1998, the link between Mary Cummins and Patricia McGauley was made during a review of the many cold cases of missing, presumed murdered women in the greater Dublin area. A wide-scale review of all similar cases was undertaken due to political pressure for Gardy to solve the disappearance of American student Annie McCarrick. One name came up in both investigations into Mary and Patricia's disappearances. Michael Bambrick. Bambrick, of course, was Patricia's partner. He'd also been the man in the pub with Mary Cummins the night she disappeared. And then, at the end of 1994, a young girl walked into Ronanstown Garda Station. She was 12 years old and alleged a series of abuses against her by her father, Michael Bambrick. She'd been locked into the garden shed, kept out of the kitchen, denied food and beaten. Once her father had killed her pets in a rage over something trivial. She also alleged that she'd been sexually abused and told Gardy she recalled seeing Mary Cummins around the time of her disappearance. Adrienne recalled playing with a little girl called Samantha in Cara's pub in Francis Street. She said that she and her father had gone home to Ronanstown and that Mary had come with them in the cab. When her minders returned her home that night, Mary was still there. The next morning, the woman was gone, but her runners were still in the house. Adrienne recalled that later her father had burned the shoes to get rid of them. Mary had also given her a Coke-branded flask. 
This Adrienne was able to show to the Gardie, who confirmed that it was a promotional item given to Mary by her nephew, not something that was on sale in the shops. Social workers looked into the environment in the house and it seemed to confirm a lot of what the young girl was saying. At the very least, number 57 was not a sanitary or safe environment and Adrienne was at that point removed from the home and sent to live with her sister at their aunt's house. On the 23rd of January 1995, Michael Bambrick was arrested in relation to five charges of sexually assaulting a minor. They weren't able to hold him, and although he had consented to the search of the property at 57 St. Ronan's Park, Gardie discovered that he wasn't actually living there anymore. He'd effectively sublet the house out, and Gardie couldn't get permission to search the place from the new tenants. They needed to get permission because there wasn't anything in Irish law at the time, which would allow a search warrant to be issued in these circumstances. After he'd moved out of St. Ronan's Park, Bambrick was put up by the Eastern Health Board in a hostel. Effectively, he was homeless. It was at this point he met his next girlfriend, Stella Mooney. She was a young mother of two, also staying at a hostel, and was by that point in January also pregnant with Bambrick's child. The council secured the couple housing, in St. Teresa's Gardens, where Bambrick had lived with Patricia only a few years before. The neighbours weren't happy to see that he had returned, and within months there were rumours flying around the flats that Bambrick had indecently assaulted young girls. Neighbours in St. Teresa's Gardens remembered him as weird. The local mothers would keep a close eye on him when he lived in the flats in the 80s, because he was known to steal clothing off the lines, knickers or children's clothing or young girls' bras. Not only was it creepy, the mothers in the flats couldn't afford to be replacing stolen items, so they'd keep an eye on their washing. They'd yell at him, mocking, not today, Josephine, if they saw him make an attempt. The residents protested when Bambrick returned and eventually he was kicked out of the complex. He and Stella moved first to Queen Street and then to North King Street, each time being forced to move on by their neighbours. Bambrick was kept under surveillance by Gardie, such was the threat that they believed he posed, but they simply did not have enough to carry out the searches or arrest him for any length of time. It was also decided that Gardie would approach Stella and warn her of the danger posed by the man she was living with and whose child she was carrying. Meanwhile, the family who had been living in Bambrick's old house in Ronanstown moved out. When they did, the corporation gave Gardie permission to search the house. In April of 1995, news broke that a garden in the back of a house at St. Ronan's Park was being excavated by Gardie as part of the search for the missing women. The cases of Mary Cummins and Patricia McGauley were now thought to be connected and it appeared that the Gardie were searching for their bodies. The press waited for a dramatic turn of events to report, but nothing was found. After digging through the garden, all that was found was a dead cat, a hat, and some animal bone. Gardie even used radar to check the floors of the house to make sure nothing was disturbed indoors. 
Mary Cummins' sister said in the days after the dig finished that she believed her sister to be dead. There was no way, according to Josephine, that Mary would have left her daughter, who by April of 1995 was eight years old. In May, Gardy returned to the house, this time with forensic specialists. The floorboards were removed and examined, and blood was found on around 50 pieces of the wood. In some cases, it had seeped through the entirety of the plank, indicating that there had been a lot of blood present on the floor of the house at some point. It was concentrated in the small box room of the house. Michael Bambrick was arrested on the 24th of June 1995 while eating breakfast at the Capuchin Brothers Church, who run a cafeteria service for the homeless. He was held and questioned under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act, allowing Gardy to detain him for 48 hours to be interviewed. It was reported by the Irish Times that this section had been chosen because Bambrick was now accused of having threatened another man with a shotgun and of being in possession of a spear gun. Though Gardy were really after information about what had become of Patricia McGauley and Mary Cummins. Bambrick gave Gardy the information they wanted after 13 hours in custody. He signed a statement indicating that he knew where Patricia McGauley and Mary Cummins were buried, and outlining his version of the events on the nights that the two women went missing. He spoke of Patricia's last night. Bambrick said he drank six pints that night in the city, and Patricia had a lot of drink taken too. They'd fought because she wanted to go pick up the children, who were staying with her mother in her home off Capel Street. Bambrick relented and they collected the children and returned to their home in St. Ronan's Park. After they got the kids to bed, the couple fought again when Patricia asked Michael to go and get her a packet of cigarettes. He'd said no and there had been a shouting match. He eventually found a single cigarette in the living room and the fight had stopped. After that, they'd had sex. He'd tied her up. He heard her gasping and saw that she was going blue. Bambrick told Gardy that Patricia would sometimes let him do this, but other times she didn't like to be tied in this way. This time, he said, the tights were taut around Patricia's head, and so he ran for scissors, but when he returned, Patricia was dead. Bambrick described how he'd moved her body to the spare box room, and had then just kind of continued with his routine. The next morning he took the kids to school and had gone to his false work placement as a caretaker. After that he'd called into Patricia's mum's house to collect the girls and Patricia's welfare payment. The day after, the Friday, he had finally decided what to do with Patricia's body and so, while the girls were at school, he dismembered Patricia. He used a paper knife and then a small hacksaw to cut Patricia's body into pieces which he placed in black bags. That night, under the cover of darkness, he took the bags downstairs and out into the back garden, where he threw them over his back wall. Then Bambrick himself went over the wall, where he found his bicycle waiting for him. He put it there earlier in the day. Then he cycled the bags to a makeshift dump at Lynch's Lane in Balgaddy. It would have taken him about ten minutes to make the journey. 
There, Bambrick had taken the body parts from the bags and covered the remains of Patricia McGauley with clods of clay. In a later statement, Bambrick told Gardie that Patricia had struggled before he tied her up. She had actually been dozing off when he initiated their sexual contact, and she'd shouted at him to stop. He said he'd pinned her down underneath him and then tied her up. He was wearing her clothes and underwear while this happened. After killing Patricia, Bambrick said that he had walked himself to the entrance of Ronan's Tangarda station, just minutes from his own house, but he told them that he couldn't force himself to go inside and admit to police what he had done. Bambrick went on to tell Gardie how he had met Mary Cummins in a pub while he was out with his daughter. When they decided to leave the pub on Francis Street, Bambrick had asked Mary to join him back at his house in Ronanstown, and so all three went back to Mary's flat and then took a taxi to Bambrick's house. There, Bambrick dropped off Adrienne with a childminder and he and Mary headed into Ballyfermot and then Clondalkin to continue drinking. When closing rolled around, Mary and Michael returned to Bambrick's house. The childminder left when they arrived, and with Adrienne apparently in bed asleep, Bambrick said that he and Mary began to kiss. As things progressed, Bambrick said that Mary allowed him to tie her up, with her hands belted behind her back and a pair of tights rolled up in her mouth as a gag. He said, quote, The next thing I knew, she was dead. End quote. Again, Bambrick had hidden Mary in the box room. Then he'd cut up her body and placed the parts into black bin bags. This time, he brought the body parts by wheelbarrow to a field near to Balgadi School. He buried them under rubbish there. And so that was what became of Mary Cummins. According to the Irish Times, after his confession, Bambrick told Gardie, quote, I'm glad I've got everything off my chest. The two girls can have a decent burial now. And also, quote, I know I killed Patricia and Mary, but I didn't set out to do it. I want to tell Adrienne I'm sorry for what I'd done. I love her a lot. Louise won't understand yet. I hope they have a good life, end quote. Gardie now had two sites to search, only 700 metres or half a mile apart. The following day, excavations were begun at the two locations in Balgadi. A priest was called in to say prayers over the excavation sites once it was clear that the Gardaí were dealing with makeshift graves. Two sites at the spot on Lynch's Lane were identified, with each being covered by a scaffold and tarpaulin. A large area was sealed off by the Gardaí from press and the public while the examination was ongoing. Drainage work had been carried out in the area in recent years, which caused movement in the soil, and Gardie believed that this movement had disturbed the gravesite. Land all around the ditch that Bambrick had identified was cleared, as the area had been used at one point as a makeshift dump. After much difficulty in the dig, the Garda sub-aqua unit was dispatched to the site in Lynch's Lane. And finally, after a few days, partial remains were discovered in a foot of stagnant wastewater. 
At the other site in Balgadi, Gardi were able to recover full remains in a thorough search. A state pathologist was called in to confirm that the bones uncovered over a three-day operation were in fact human. Forensic testing continued throughout that week to confirm the Gardi's suspicions that these were the bodies of Patricia and Mary. Gardi also spoke to the women who were known to have had Michael Bambrick in their lives. His first wife, Marie, recounted the terrifying night that she'd awoken to him standing over her. She told the officers that, although she hadn't reported this incident, she thought Michael was going to kill her that night. Yet another woman, a friend of both Bambrick and Marie, recalled to police that shortly after Bambrick's marriage collapsed, Michael had called to her house unexpectedly. Stephen Ray outlines how the woman had explained that she was on her way out, but invited the man in for tea. She kept dropping hints for him to leave, but Michael lingered in the kitchen. Finally, she told him that she really had to go. She was due at the rent office, and she had been on her way out with her infant son when he called. But Bambrick grabbed her as she got up to leave and kissed her. When she protested, Bambrick threatened to hurt her and the baby if she didn't do what he said. He brought her into the bedroom and sexually assaulted her. This woman had gone to the police and Michael Bambrick was arrested. He was convicted of indecent assault against the woman on the 30th of July 1974 and given a six-month suspended sentence. Gardi once again visited Stella Mooney and she made a statement to the Gardi on the 9th of June 1995. She told police that Bambrick liked to tie her up and dressed in women's clothing. Bambrick, she said, had told her that he'd killed a woman in Clondalkin and that he was trying not to think about it. Stella recalled that he'd cried as he told her this. Days after his arrest, Stella also spoke to a newspaper and alleged that he'd assaulted her and that he'd tried to strangle her in February of that year, 1995. The Irish Times later reported that at this time, Gardy believed that along with his relationship with Ms. Mooney, Bambrick was also pursuing a number of women for the purposes of acting out his fantasies. Bambrick was held in custody on the charges of indecent assault against a minor, while Gardy prepared to file on two counts of murder that was to be sent to the DPP. Bambrick was remanded in custody until on the 20th of October 1995, he appeared in court once more and was charged with those two counts of murder. He had been arrested by Detective Sergeant John Melody and appeared in Kilmainham District Court, where Judge Murrah Connellan was told that Bambrick had been residing at 57 St. Ronan's Park, but was now of no fixed abode. As Bambrick was unemployed, an application for free legal aid was granted. The court was informed that Bambrick would not be applying for bail and hoped for an early date to be set for trial. The court was informed that the Book of Evidence, an outline of the state's case against him, was being prepared. Bambrick made no reply to the charges when they were read to him. A week later, on the 27th of October, Bambrick's solicitor, Mr. Owen McCarthy, requested a date at the Central Criminal Court by December for Bambrick. 
At this stage, his client had been in custody for some months and knew that if he didn't get a date in the Central before Christmas, he'd likely not face trial until the following October at the earliest, given the times at which court sits and the long holiday over the summer. Judge Gillian Hussey acknowledged that the book of evidence was slow in coming from the DPP, who told her that it was a difficult book and that it might take six to eight weeks further to complete. Michael Brady from the DPP told her that there were over 260 witness statements alone. With the DPP chastened, Bambrick was remanded back into custody, but he was eager to get on with things. On the 8th of December 1995, Michael Bambrick and his legal team waived their right to view the book of evidence in order to be granted an early trial date. He told the court that it was his intention to plead not guilty to the two counts of murder that he faced. It was clear from early on that Bambrick did not take full responsibility for the deaths of Patricia McGauley and Mary Cummins. In statements to the Gardee, while he had admitted that he had caused their deaths in the course of sex acts that he had instigated, he maintained that it was an accident in each case, something that he'd never meant to happen. At one point he told Gurdie, quote, I don't know what came over me on either of these occasions. I don't know how to explain it. I got enjoyment out of stuffing the tights into their mouths. I now realise the danger of what I did on these occasions, end quote. Yet, faced with the apparent accidental consequences of his particular kink, rather than seek help or ring for emergency services, Bambrick had inexplicably hidden the bodies in his home and disposed of them days later. He said he had acted out of panic, despite having carried on with his life normally as Patricia and then Mary had each lain dead in the box room of his house. And so, a number of months later, on May 3rd, 1996, Michael Bambrick got his early date in court and appeared before the Central Criminal Court, sitting at the historic Four Courts building in Dublin City Centre. There, he maintained his pleas of not guilty to the two charges of murder against him, but he pleaded guilty to manslaughter on both counts. Mr. Kevin Hoff, senior counsel, appearing for the Director of Public Prosecutions, informed the court that this plea was acceptable to the state. There would be no need now for a trial. Bambrick had escaped the murder charges, but he would still have to be sentenced for manslaughter. Patrick Gageby, senior counsel for the defence, asked that the sentencing be deferred for at least four weeks to accommodate the preparation of reports for the court. They were having trouble securing a psychologist. Mr. Justice Carney adjourned the case until the 14th of June. Details of Bambrick's statements to the Gardaí were published by newspapers on the 4th and 5th of May after his plea was entered and accepted, which was strange as his statements had not yet been read to the court. That wouldn't happen until the 17th of July. It was during that hearing that Detective Sergeant John Melody outlined the case against Michael Bambrick for the court. Bambrick's criminal record was read into the court for the benefit of Mr. Justice Paul Carney during sentencing. 
He had six previous convictions. One was for the indecent assault in 1974, and the other five were for larceny. Some of those larcenies, or theft of personal property, involved Bambrick having stolen women's underwear. Bambrick hung his head as the details of his crime were read to the court, and he held his head in his hands. Relatives of Patricia and Mary were in the court and wept as they heard the details of what had happened to their loved ones. The court heard how the women had died, and that Bambrick had then dismembered them in his home using a paper knife and a junior hacksaw. He'd told Gardy that he knew he could do what he wanted once the women were tied up, and that he'd gotten pleasure from gagging their mouths with tights. Mary Cummins had tried to push Bambrick off her, and had told him that he was choking her. Bambrick admitted that, at that time, he felt he couldn't stop. He wasn't able to. Patricia had also struggled with Bambrick the night she died, and a neighbour had heard her screams. Bambrick had described to Gardy how the stockings had been tied so tightly around Patricia's head that he had to cut them off with scissors. He told Gardy that he'd brought her body to the small box room in the house and left her there until he went to work dismembering her. Patrick Gageby for the defence said that he would be offering no evidence, but Mr. Bambrick did want him to express on his behalf his quote-unquote profound remorse for his actions. Gageby went on to say that Bambrick had never intended to kill or cause serious injury to either woman. Bambrick had had these sexual tastes from an early point in his life and Gageby accepted that Bambrick should not have continued with them after he had killed Patricia. The dismemberment and dumping of the bodies should not be considered by the court for the purposes of sentencing, he said, and in mitigation for his client were the admissions and guilty plea, along with the desire for a Christian burial for his victims. Gageby also asked for a direction that Bambrick be allowed counselling while in prison to deal with his problems. Mr Justice Carney adjourned the case for a week in order to consider his verdict regarding the sentence that he would hand down. And so, in sentencing, Mr Justice Carney noted that there was evidence of Bambrick's having engaged in sexual relations similar to those circumstances that led to Patricia and Mary's death, and that these other occasions hadn't resulted in Bambrick's partner's death. Carney did note, however, that Bambrick continued the behaviour after the apparent accidental death of Patricia and had gone on to kill Mary and thus considered him at a high risk of reoffending and also taking into account his age. A report of the sentencing in the Irish Times Law Review section in October of 1996 said that Carney had said that Bambrick was, quote, of such an age that he was liable to be sexually active on release with remission from any determinate sentence. The probability was that he would have a pent-up appetite for his form of bondage, fueled by group fantasizing with other sexual offenders at Arbor Hill Prison. End quote. In these circumstances, a life sentence would protect both society at large and Bambrick from the sort of situation 
that would allow his reoffending to continue. But there was a problem. Because the state had accepted Bambrick's guilty plea to manslaughter, a life sentence was not an option that was open to Carney to impose. The experienced judge spent a good amount of time thinking about the problem. What seemed right and basic common sense was to keep Bambrick away from the public. But there was no sentencing guidelines that would allow that. In fact, when he reviewed the case law, Mr Justice Carney discovered that that too was against him. He set it out in great detail in his sentencing statement. In the Ryan case, Mr Justice Carney noted that Justice Finlay had discussed the need to balance the right to life of an individual against an accused's right to liberty. However, he went on to stress that the mere intention to commit a crime was in itself not illegal unless furthered by overt acts of preparation. In legalese, both mens rea, intention, and the actus reus or guilty act are required. Finlay asked quite pointedly, if intention itself is something to legally regulate, how much intention had to be proved, and what standard of proof would be required to establish it? Put simply, the courts are not allowed to impose preventative sentences. For example, Justice Carney described a case where it seemed clear that the accused would pose a danger to women in the future. He'd pled guilty and was found by medical professionals to have a high degree of likelihood of reoffending. He had raped his 68-year-old mother. But in sentencing in that case, Carney was tied by the maximum sentences outlined in legislation and could not impose a sentence that might balance the right to life of the public against the defendant's right to liberty. By reason of the fact that Bambrick had pled guilty to manslaughter, and that this had been accepted by the DPP, Carney concluded that the option of sentencing Bambrick to life imprisonment was not an option that was open to him. He was bound by recent precedent on the matter, which was decided only two years before, in 1994, at the Supreme Court. This was the case of DPP and G. This appeal involved a man who had been convicted of over 400 occasions of abuse of three young girls between the ages of 6 and 12 after entering a guilty plea. The trial judge had given the priority to the protection of the community and imposed a life sentence. But the Supreme Court found that the early guilty plea was a mitigating factor and meant that a life sentence was not an option in the case. When the state accepted the plea of manslaughter, this meant that Bambrick was entitled to a punishment less than what he would have got had he accepted guilt of the murder or if his guilt had been proved in court. So in the end, Mr Justice Carney had to settle for a sort of compromise at sentencing. Bambrick was given 15 years for the murder of Patricia McGauley and sentenced to 18 years for the murder of Mary Cummins. Mr Justice Carney even went so far as to say outright at the hearing that he would have liked to impose a life sentence, with Bambrick only being released after experts determined that he was no longer a threat to the public. But that wasn't constitutionally possible. And without this life sentence, there would also be no out-on-license element to his release. At the time, once he was out, Michael Bambrick would be completely unsupervised.
one year of the sentence was suspended to take into account the time that Bambrick had served on remand. The two terms would run concurrently, and he was denied leave to appeal on the grounds of severity of the sentence. Justice Carney also noted that it was clear that someone had leaked the contents of Bambrick's Garda statements to the press before they were entered onto the record in court. Senior Gardee assured the judge that the matter was being taken seriously and an investigation into the leak was being conducted. On that basis, Mr Justice Carney decided not to reprimand the journalists involved. Journalists from the Irish Independent, the Star and the Sunday World were questioned over the matter but refused to name their sources. The court was informed that a hundred Gardee had been involved in Bambrick's investigation and that not everyone had been questioned about it at that stage but that an inquiry was ongoing. It was made clear that the court reporter had been eliminated from all suspicion. According to the Irish Times, Justice Carney was annoyed about the leak and said that Bambrick was, quote, entitled to have the statement proven before him in court and not peddled in tabloid newspapers, end quote. The family of Bambrick's victims were alarmed at the sentence, however. Mary Cummins' sister Josephine said that she believed that Michael Bambrick would kill again if he was ever to be released. Josephine was horrified that the DPP had accepted his plea and said that it should not have been accepted. She told one paper, quote, He looks normal. He could easily fool another woman, end quote. And so Michael Bambrick was brought back to Mountjoy Prison to begin his sentence there. He didn't stay there long, though, as he was attacked by the inmates, and so Bambrick was moved to Arbor Hill, the home of Ireland's sexual offenders. He was reported to have settled in well in his new accommodation. Apparently, the discipline of a prison routine suited him, and he had taken to it. In the early days of his sentence, he gave permission for the child he had fathered with Stella Mooney to be adopted. On April 24th, 2009, Bambrick qualified for quarter remission due to good behaviour and was released from prison. He left Arbor Hill at about half four that day as photographers waited to get pictures of the bearded 56-year-old man. He got into a red Ford Mondeo and was driven away. Bambrick has been placed on the sex offenders register, which was introduced in Ireland in 2001 and requires offenders to notify Gardee of their whereabouts and their addresses. He did not take part in any programmes for sex offenders while in prison. In 2016, the Irish Sun, a tabloid newspaper, tracked Bambrick down. They discovered that he was living under an assumed name in Dublin's north inner city centre. They reported that his neighbours had eventually figured out who he was and he was avoided in the area. The only people seen with him often are homeless women. There was a strong implication in the article that Bambrick may be paying them for sex and that his particular proclivities are still part of his life. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod 
or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by our supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Suzanne Miller, Nigel Gibson, Valerie O'Connor, Lisa, Miriam Lard, Chris O'Donnell, Paul Maher, Sarah Servalin-Brown, Moira O'Brien, Ashling McGinn, and Michelle Guess. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so, so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content and nifty merch, so I hope you'll check it out. Our theme music is Quinn Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Bambrick had escaped the murder. Bambrick had ex- Thank you also to the sponsors for this week's episode. Don't forget to check out the absolutely awesome game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Make your coffee breaks or bus journeys fun again. Thank you to our sponsor this week, The Books. Thanks also to The Books. Get yourself some seasonal arrangements and make your holiday season stand out this year. Visit thebooks.com forward slash men's and enter code men's at checkout for 25% off your order. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com forward slash M-E-N-S and enter code M-E-N-S. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so get downloading and shopping and I will forever be grateful. And you'll get cool stuff too. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So get shopping, and I will be forever grateful, and you'll get cool stuff, too. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by our supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Suzanne Miller, Nigel Gibson, Valerie O'Connor, Lisa, Miriam Lard, Chris O'Donnell, Paul Maher, Sarah Servalin-Brown, Moira O'Brien, Ashling McGinn, and Michelle Guess. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so, so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content and nifty merch, so I hope you'll check it out. Our theme music is Quinn Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website www.mensreapod.com Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.